Hello, friends. This episode of the Pot and Order podcast is brought to you by our new sponsor, Animal Stone. Animal Stone connects people to animals through solid sterling silver and solid 14 karat gold animal charms. Browse the full collection at animalstone.com to find your favorite animal and use code PAUSE10 for 10% off your order. Proceeds from the sale of 10 animals goes back to wildlife conservation. This episode is also brought to you by Naked Coconuts. It's an unfortunate common practice for many coconut product brands to use the cruel labor of monkeys, but Naked Coconuts isn't one of them. They are committed to providing coconut and MCT oils, soy-free soy sauces, and more, all without the use of animals. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary, and more importantly right now, an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast. And these are their stories. Everybody and welcome to episode 61. You are hearing correctly. It's Peter Sankoff here back again uh, with Pawn Order and I'm here with my co-host Camille Lapchuk. How are you Camille? I'm good Peter. Nice to have you back after uh, taking an episode off and enjoying the company of our new co-host Jessica Scott-Reed. I have a few things to say about that Camille. I heard the story last week about why I'm not hosting regularly anymore. And I feel like some, you know, a little bit of detail is, is in order. So, like, I heard the story about I'm busy and this, that, and the other thing. I feel our listeners deserve the true story, Camille. If you remember, our last episode was two episodes ago. And I think I said something about Camille going gallivanting to PEI. And like the next day, I get this strongly worded message from Pawn Order HQ, and it says, Sankoff, you're demoted. Like that was it. That's how things are run here at Pawn Order. Unbelievable. <laughs> All right, let's, I'll write, dear listeners, I will leave it up to you to decide if that's an accurate account of events or demoted. if maybe Peter's embellishing a little bit. Demoted. demoted. It is, it demoted. is, it is, that is just the way things are run at Pawn Order. Anyway, I'm, look, Camille, I'm a professional. Okay, I'm back. I'm going to do my job. I'll take my demotion in stride. That's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Camille, we've got a, a jam-packed show today, because we don't get to see each other so often, so there's, like, tons to talk about. There is, and I know one thing that you and I both really want to talk about right off the bat is, funny enough, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Whoever would have thought we'd open Pawn Order by talking about eating at KFC? Kentucky Fried Chicken. This was big in our Twitter feeds for a while. Kentucky Fried Chicken, plant-based. Try it or don't, Camille. It's your choice. No one's forcing you. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, they're hilarious. So as you guys probably know from having listened to this before, and maybe you've followed the news, KFC brought in an amazing plant-based filet. So vegan chicken. And they also got popcorn vegan chicken now, which is pretty great. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, right off the bat, they had hilarious social media promos. They had just like a really sort of like sarcastic but funny tone with all their posts, which I really (laughs) loved. And um, obviously, we all flocked to try it right away when it came out. Uh, And the cool thing about it, too, is that it's not just the patty that's vegan. Uh, One of the things that always drives me nuts about these like vegan offerings at non-vegan places is they never have vegan condiments. Like there's never vegan cheese or vegan mayo. But in this case, KFC's mayo, it's a regular plain mayo, not the spicy mayo, is already vegan. So that was pretty cool. Wait, Camille, I mean, I I just had the the Beyond Meat sausage bun at Starbucks with their vegan cheese. Wasn't that it? it, No, I got that wrong, didn't I? (laughs) <laughs> Starbucks. I was gonna say what? Starbucks has a Beyond Meat sausage like thingy, but like it's like a Beyond Meat sausage with cheese, like just fantastic. Just just what I was with like for. non-vegan cheese. Of course, of well, course, non-vegan. Because why would ve- you want vegans it aren't vegan? the audience? <laughs> why would you want it vegan? Okay, Camille, let's let's do our reviews. Let's let's start let's start with the taste first. So like. Do you want to go first? You've you've sort of given your views of it already. I have some views on the sandwich. They're controversial takes, Camille. So I think we should talk about Controversial. A little bit controversial. So first of all, let me just say, KFC was a first for me, right? Like, I've never been to KFC. I was not a KFC guy back when I was a meteor. Like, McDonald's Burger King, which I visited recently. I did the McVegan in Germany, you may remember, and I did the Impossible Burger at Burger King. Like, I've been to those places before, uh, but I've never eaten KFC. It was just so, so it was kind of exciting. Well, exciting. <laughs> I wasn't so excited. A but new my, experience. My, my kids were kind of excited because they've never been. So it was their first time to ever try KFC. So, like, you know, I have some thoughts on their sandwiches yeah well I, I think maybe it was like the second or third time in my life that I've been to KFC I've got one recollection of going like maybe in high school I was mostly veg since I was 12 but I think there was like a year or two where I ate meat so I'm pretty sure I went once in that period um, although I was actually reminded my, by my friend Katie Gibbs that she and I went in Ottawa when they came out with the plant-based um, chicken like not a filet but like a chicken burger mm-hmm. which was okay it's fine. Yeah. Glad they had it. But th- this is way better. So, so yeah, the taste. I mean, I found it delightfully crispy. It was mm-hmm. like really, really crisp on the outside, pretty juicy in the inside. The only thing I would say is that I probably would have asked for extra mayo next time because I big, found it a teeny bit dry. Big time. And maybe a tomato would have been nice. Big time. My, my wife had the same concern, and I tend to agree. It was light on the sauce. Definitely light on the sauce. But everything else was very solid. I had the spicy chicken, Camille. Which did you go for? Um, I don't think I knew there was a spicy chicken. I just had the regular one. Okay, so the spicy chicken gets a big thumbs up for me. That was a darn good sandwich. Uh, it was really, really good. Uh, my wife and I both had that. And I would order that again. Um, like, it's definitely, it's different from a Beyond Burger. Like, you know, I love Beyond Burgers and I eat them a lot, but I don't know about you. Like, Beyond Burgers just feel super oily because of the way that you chew into them. You know what I mean? Like, they have that sort of, they're a burger texture and this is a chicken filet and it really does taste different than that. So, so I found that it was a real nice change because my kids kept asking me, well, which do you like better? And I'm like, well, I can't rank them because they're completely different. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, 
I, I do know what you mean. Although I, I do just want to point out, like it's still deep fried. <laughs> like yeah, you're not no, avoiding not oil healthy. by eating this. Just oh in case God. anyone out there had some illusion that this is a health food, it is not. No. <laughs> Definitely not. It's like 700 calories for the sandwich or something ridiculous. No, it's, it's not good for you. There's okay. no question. So, but but I thought the sandwich was good. I can't. I'm I'm, I'm not going to be a regular, but like it's something I'll eat from time to time. But I got to tell you, unlike you, Camille, I am giving a thumbs down on the popcorn chicken. Thumbs down. Oh. I didn't, oh, I didn't like it. That. And maybe it was just the way it was cooked, but my son, who loves that stuff, didn't like it. And I didn't like it either. It wasn't, it's not like chicken nuggets. It didn't have, because uh, the density, they're really small. And I found the density was just, it was, it was too thick. Like I just didn't find it, I didn't find it an enjoyable eating experience. So I'm going to give a thumbs up to spicy chicken, but a thumbs down to popcorn chicken. That's my controversial oh, wow. take. Oh my God, we're going to get hate mail after this, Peter. Well, we might anyway, because <laughs> your, your take isn't the only thing that was controversial about this whole situation. That's so true. I got embroiled in a, a conversation on the Ottawa Vegetarians and Vegans Facebook group. Uh, it turns out that a lot of people have very strong feelings about KFC offering a vegan chicken sandwich. And some of those feelings involved like pretty legitimate concerns about KFC being basically an evil company, right? Like they do Ugh. kill billions of chickens. You know, Camille, Camille, next thing you know, they're going to come after my Nestle drumsticks. Oh, wait, they already did. Oh, they have. They have. <laughs> and by the way, got some of those in my freezer. Those get two thumbs up. Not this one. Like Nestle drumsticks are those. That's an awesome product. That's all I'm going to say. I gotta say, I know Nestle, not an awesome corporation. The nope. drumsticks are like those ice cream cones. Those yeah. are awesome. Like good for that. So, yeah. okay, let's talk yeah. about. So this. a lot of people, a lot of people were pretty concerned about the fact that KFC is problematic as a company, which I totally agree with, and critiquing those who are eating it. So I guess you know my general feeling about this is like, yeah, KFC kills billions of chickens, and that's a terrible thing. And I think that's why it's uh, precisely why it's so important that they've actually introduced a plant-based option onto the menu. Uh, it's obviously reflective of consumer demand and the way things are going and that they recognize that this is something that people want to eat and they're not going to, you know, get as much business unless they offer it. Um, so, you know, I think that's significant. I also am a little, I'm, I'm curious about the response because when Beyond Burger came out, I didn't see a bunch of people panning A&W. Uh, I just didn't see that same sort of level of upset about the company. And maybe it's because KFC is like exclusively focused on chickens. Obviously, chickens suffer quite a lot in the food system. I don't know what plays into it, but you know, what's the difference between going to KFC for a vegan chicken uh, sandwich or having a Beyond Burger at A&W or Peter, for that matter? What's the difference between eating one of those things and buying your vegan groceries at Whole Foods, right? Like they sell meat there, too. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to give my very quick take on this, which I'm sure is like yours, but I'm going to give it anyway. Like my take is very simple. I respect the view of people who take that position and I, I disagree with it. I, I just I think this is the world we live in. And to me, um, the more important message being sent, in my opinion, from KFC and NW is a normalization of this type of uh, a diet. And that needs to happen as far as I'm consumed, concerned, the quicker, the better. And if that means co-opting with companies that already uh, have this massive market share I'm okay with that like I think I think this normalization effect of plant-based which we'll come to Camille it's not 
don't don't call it vegan. It's plant based. Um, I think is a big thing, and I think it's a really positive and heartening development. And the fact that KFC jumped from a couple of test markets in Ontario to across the country in like no time is great. And if I can support them for doing that, that's fantastic. And the fact that their evil company continues to do um, um, chickens and treat chickens terribly, which I think is true, um, as far as I'm concerned, in the long run, I'm optimistic that this change will help to end or mitigate or militate or whatever against that practice by getting people to recognize, wait a minute, we can we can have the same type of taste without killing any animals. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that one. So, so that's, let's that's deal with this whole. Oh, I like your take. So so let's deal with this whole plant based versus vegan issue. And so the reason we're talking about this is because KFC assiduously avoided using the word vegan on its social media and in the promotion of this product. So someone would say, hey, but it's a mayo vegan. And they'd say, yes, the mayo is plant based. Like they would never go there. And I think we both found that interesting. I found it interesting. The term vegan has become, uh, uh, look, it's, uh, look, I'm a big Mad Men fan. And if you can't, if you don't like the conversation that's taking place, change the conversation. And I think the companies have recognized, rightly or wrongly, quite frankly, I found some of their Twitter advertising, like, to me, was almost over the top. It was playful. I agree with you there. But it was sort of like... Okay, like I'm hoping we can get to the normalization phase of plant-based a lot faster. But again, I'm for putting, to use a colloquial term for like cinemas, like I'm for putting butts in the seats. And if plant-based gets us there, great. What do I care? Like we are in a race against time as Jonathan Safran Foer pointed out on our last show. Like to me, like I, I think it's silly that we are like, we have to avoid assiduously the term vegan, but I don't really, I'm not really bothered by it. Yeah, I mean, the animals don't really care what you what you call your food. They just care that you're not eating them. So, you know, from that perspective, does it really matter? If, if plant-based um, plant is an acceptable way of selling to middle Canada or middle America what it is and introducing it in a non-threatening way, again, I think that's kind of silly, but what do I care? Like, if it gets results, I let me just say, like, we've said this before, Camille, like the people who run KFC and KFC marketing, I'm just going to say they know their audience a lot better than we do and they are not stupid people they have you do not make a multi-billion dollar company like that being stupid and i think that they recognize that plant-based is less likely to be threatening and more likely to be profitable so i'm like okay i'll go with you yeah, it's certainly non-threatening. And they, they did have a one hilarious thing on our website, which I'll just point out. Our producer, Shannon Milling, actually shared that on her Instagram, which is quite funny. Uh, but they have a link to the plant-based burger and something like, uh, you know, if you're upset about this, here's some relaxing videos. And they had like six or eight just like chill videos you could watch that are designed to relax you if you're a person who gets upset that KFC's selling something that's plant-based. So yeah, I think your, your point about them trying to be as non-threatening as possible is the key one there. And if that's what gets people eating this food, so be it. And since you men mentioned our producer, Shannon Milling, uh, I would like to throw out on behalf of the Paw and Order team, our official congratulations to uh, Ms. Milling. Can we still call her that anymore? Isn't she Mrs. something? Or who, who was recently married? And I just want to point out in relation to that marriage uh, or that wedding that my gift last Christmas, if you remember, Camille, on our special Christmas episode was to Shannon Milling to have sunshine on her wedding day. And she got it. So my gift came through. 
<laughs> she did. It was a beautiful day. And, uh, you know, it may have been a pandemic, but she still managed to pull it off. So congrats to Shannon and her new husband, TJ. Hooray. Hooray. Oh, all right. That's enough KFC. What else has been going on with you, Camille? How is your, I, I can't, if I say the word again, I, I could be banned from the show forever. <laughs> so I'll say, uh, maybe I'm going to ban you time? from saying gallivanting. <laughs> how is your time in PEI, Camille? My time has been good. It's been really nice to hang out with my mom. We're spending time in her garden, spending time with my cats. You know, it's it's been pretty chill, pretty quiet. Um, yeah, I'm eating as many vegan things as I can. Um, actually, one, one cool thing, uh, Veg PEI is hosting an event that I'm speaking at next week. It's Wednesday the 26th, I believe. Let me just check that while we're talking because I don't have my calendar in front of me. Um, but we're going to be doing, yeah, it's Wednesday the 26th at the Haviland Club in PEI. We're going to be doing sort of a, an event with me and a couple other speakers talking about the state of animal protection law and how Prince Edward Island can get on board and, and make positive change. So if you're in PEI, check out Veg PEI's Facebook page for details, uh, but would love to see you there. So, you know, that's about it, Peter. I've just been eating lots of things. I got to say, PEI used, used to be not so vegan friendly. I mean, a lot of places used to be not so vegan friendly, but PEI was never great. Uh, it's pretty great now. There's all kinds of options everywhere. Actually, tonight, my mom and I are going to a pop-up at this one place that has vegan cheese, and they have this Halifax uh, vegan meat company coming in for an event. So I don't have any complaints food-wise. Sorry, Camille, I just, I'm missing something. You said vegan, like four do you mean plant-based? Is that what you're talking about? I'm a, little, I'm a little confused. At the risk of confusing our listeners, vegan, plant-based, animal-free, whatever you want to call it. You call it what you call it. Yeah, fantastic. And let me just, uh, while we're talking tons of vegan stuff, I'll do a quick shout out because I was on vacation last week. I was gallivanting down to the Rocky Mountains for a week and uh, I turned up at... Um, the amazing new V Burger in uh, Calgary. And this is quickly going to be the amazing V Burger. I get the impression of like all over the country very soon. Uh, they want to go hard and fast after the fast food vegan market. And um, they are doing it mostly with chickpeas, which is really interesting. There is soy, but essentially it's essentially it's a combination of like McDonald's and Dairy Queen, or I guess it's just Dairy Queen with all the burgers because like the, the selling point for me here, I mean, their burgers were perfectly good. Their fries were perfectly good, but I could have that stuff elsewhere. But the real selling point was the aquafaba based ice cream, which they do. What? As they aquafaba? Do, they do all aquafaba based ice cream and they do blizzards effectively, Dairy Queen blizzards um, for vegans. And it was... It was pretty darn good. Like, I, I'm not going to say it was Dairy Queen level good from my fading memory of 20 years ago. But, um, you know, they were really tasty. You do an Oreo based aquafaba ice cream and it was it was great. Wow. OK, well, you know, Calgary's another spot that historically has not had amazing vegan stuff like some stuff and increasingly better. But that sounds really promising. I hope it spreads like wildfire. Wildfire, we hope, Camille. But yeah, very exciting. And it was nice to get a little bit of uh, time off, how shall we say. Oh, I'm glad you had a nice vacation. <laughs> yeah, very busy now, but not as busy as you are, Camille, because I know that just around the corner, in fact, if I do my calculations correctly, Camille, my next pawn order will be at the upcoming Animal Law Conference. 
That's right. We've been hard at work putting together a pretty amazing program for the second annual Canadian Animal Law Conference. As you probably know, we, we pivoted and we moved it online, so it will be happening virtually. And that's great because there's always so much to talk about. And the virtual format has actually let us feature more people who wouldn't have been able to attend in person. And uh, so we've got an even broader array of speakers than we expected. And it means that it's really opening up to guests, too, from all over the world. So just to fill you in a little bit on what we've got planned, there is a student day, uh, it's always very popular with anyone who's in a Canadian law school or, or other law school, and it will feature a live pod recording with all three hosts, you, Peter, me, and Jessica, which is pretty cool. Oh, uh, there's oh a career God. panel. Oh my God. That's a lot. Camille. I know. Very excited. I know. I know. And there might be a fun trivia game, FYI. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't put pressure on me there. We'll see. I hope so. Hey, you're the one who insisted on doing this, <laughs> so the That's pressure right, is on. I'm very anyway. I'm yeah. very happy we're doing Paw and Order, but I, I I I I'm not committing officially to another trivia game, but I'm hopeful. Let's say that. Hopeful. All right, listeners, put put the pressure on. Put the pressure on. <laughs> it was our listeners who demanded that the show go on, so I'm happy about that. Yeah, yeah, there we go. So there's also a career panel at the student day, also very popular, and uh, a student AGM. And then as far as the main conference content goes, I'm just going to mention a few sessions. And these are a couple of the ones I'm particularly excited about. But check out CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca to see all the sessions. There's definitely a panel about egg gag laws, which is great. A couple of Canadian and U.S. experts and also a former undercover investigator. There's a panel about animals used in science, which doesn't get a ton of attention in this country because lab use is so invisible to most of us. But we've got Dr. Aisha Akhtar, uh, Dr. Charu Chandrasekhara, who's at the Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Methods at the University of Windsor. And we've got a law prof, Daniel Dillon from Lakehead University and Elizabeth Ormandy from the Animals and Science Policy Institute, all total experts in their field. There is a great panel about indigenous worldviews and animal rights, uh, all my relations. Going to be super great. It's got Alison Cuffley and Faisal Mula on it and potentially another special guest. There is one panel, Peter, that you're on that I'm also super excited about. It's called Not Above the Law, Challenging Farming Exemptions. Mm. And the speakers are going to talk about, well, you can tell us what you're going to talk about. We're going to be talking about agricultural practices, my usual bugaboo codes, things like that. Very excited. Yeah, and how can we challenge these practices that farmers keep saying are above the law and that they're just exempt from regulation? It's not necessarily a foregone conclusion that there's no way to address that. So that panel's going to get into it. Uh, we've got a panel about habeas corpus litigation on behalf of animals. This is typically known as like rights-based personhood cases, um, such as the ones that the Non-Human Rights Project has brought in the States. And actually, their director, Stephen Wise, is going to be on that panel, along with uh, Jesse Schwartz, who's investigated the issue in Canada and write, wrote, written a pretty great paper about that. Mm. Of course, it's a Tiger King panel, Peter. Oh, Tiger Kings and trafficking rings. Of course. How do we combat wildlife crime and exploitation? Uh, two panels about municipal law and how you as an advocate locally can leverage those laws to improve life for animals. Big deal. Uh, We've talked about, dangerous... about that before. Yeah. 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 Super, super low hanging fruit there. Um, panel about dangerous dog litigation in Vancouver. 
And um, a couple sessions about aquatic animals and the law as well, which again, another hot topic. We, by, by numbers, we use more ocean animals than any other species. So important to look into it. Absolutely. So I'm excited. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a great couple of days. I hope I'm alive by the time we get there. My God, it's going to be a crazy month. <laughs> I know. I know the feeling. I'm, wow. I'm, I am hoping I'm alive after the conference ends. Yeah. But. yeah, this is a crazy time of year. I forgot, you know, the conference has kind of been sneaking up on me, but so is the semester, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. like, holy crap, I'm so busy with other things that it's like I have to really turn my attention to all that stuff. So, yeah, don't worry. I'll be ready. Good. And I wanted to highlight one other really cool thing we've got at the conference this year. We've got a scholars track of presentations. Now, this is a little bit different from the regular format, which is mostly panel based. It's actually people are going to give like a, a presentation of about an hour and go pretty in depth on a particular topic. And uh, the scholars track is presented by the Brooks Institute, which is a great U.S. foundation that uh, works to advance animal um, rights. Uh, technically, the Brooks Institute for Animal Rights Law and Policy is a U.S.-based national independent think tank pursuing a paradigm shift in human responsibility towards and the value of non-human animals by advancing animal law, animal policy, and related interdisciplinary studies. Wow. So we're really, really happy that they're participating in this and sponsoring. They're actually the Platinum Conference sponsor as well. And wow. I wanted to let everybody know about a cool opportunity that the Brooks Institute is offering, uh, completely free, they produce and disseminate outstanding independent academic and public policy research and programming. And uh, they publish something called the Brooks Animal Law Digest. So Peter, that's a premier online publication that offers in-depth and up-to-date coverage about today's most important animal law and policy issues. It's published weekly as a collaborative effort with Harvard Law School's Animal Law and Policy Program, and it's a service to the animal protection community. So it's pretty much like having a full-time lawyer on your staff researching and reporting to you on U.S. current legal developments related to animal protection issues. But it's U.S. focused, but they also get into Canadian issues. Um, so that's great, too, for anyone north of the border or around the world. And the best part is that the digest is free. You can sign up on the Brooks Institute website, the brooksinstitute.org, subscribe to their weekly digest, and you'll be presented every week in your inbox with a great opportunity to learn more about the field of animal law. So a high-level legal overview of weekly developments for those who are focused on specific work. Um, but if you are sort of more generally interested in the topic, some of the some of the stories that come out might be a good jumping off point for digging into a specific current issue in the field. And it's searchable, so you can compile updates by categories, search key terms, and each issue contains links to, links to background materials to help the reader orient around that specific issue. So I strongly encourage everyone to visit thebrooksinstitute.org to sign up for this awesome free resource. Fantastic. I look forward to signing up myself. And let me remind you, there are other things you can sign up for. It's been a little sparse on the review, uh, you know, front. I'm looking forward to people, you know, explaining or telling us how they feel about my recent demotion, as it were. Um, let's add to our 100 plus five star reviews, please. We love reviews. And I believe we have one new review. Correct, Camille? 
We do have a new review, and it's a really nice one. It's from MKS20 uh, in Great Britain, as it happens. And this person says, I love this podcast. I enjoy listening to it. I love the banter, but I also find it incredibly helpful for my own work. As a lawyer practicing in another common law jurisdiction, the law may be slightly different, but there are always broad legal principles that are discussed that are incredibly helpful to broaden my approach to my animal law work. It also helps me maintain my sanity. (laughs) Sometimes this battle feels insurmountable and kind of lonely, and our defeats can often feel very unjust, (laughs) and they often are. Mm -hmm. I feel that, Peter. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But hearing about... Hearing about your legal victories and struggles and frustrations genuinely helps with this. There's a sense of hope, but also solidarity. Thanks for all you do. Well, that's pretty nice. Um, You know, that's what keeps us going. Uh, I think we all need to be supporting each other and really glad that we played that role for you, MKS. Thanks so much for the review. Thank you. That is a wonderful review. Now, a final reminder that you can also support us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Patreon lets you sign up to give a certain amount per month to creators like us, and we offer regular prizes for our patrons patrons via Patreon, and of course, our love and gratitude. We have a new patron this month, Advocat, love the name, and we want to thank that person for, for joining the club and becoming a patron. And uh, we'd love if you did too. You can give as little as a dollar or as much as you want. And every penny goes toward putting this podcast on the airwaves. All right, Camille, let's uh, jump into the news. Um, There is a lot of news to deal with, as always. And this one is a follow-up because I listened very carefully to last week's uh, last show. And uh, it is a follow-up to a story that uh, took place in Manitoba, where I believe our co-host Jessica Scott-Reed is based. Yes, indeed. So Jessica wrote an article in the Winnipeg Free Press about two live hens who were found by some people at a dump in Manitoba on top of a pile of dead birds. And these two have somehow survived when the rest of them were killed by some means. We're not sure what that was. So reporters looked into it. Neither the egg nor chicken farmers knew anything about it, but they didn't even seem surprised by this, Peter, that somebody would kill all these hens and just dump them. And of course, given supply chain disruptions, slaughterhouse, COVID outbreaks, there's some weird stuff going on right now with farmers depopulating farms. And that perhaps is why those industry groups weren't surprised. I think I've got the answer, Camille. It's going to be a theme of today's show. You're going to hear it come up a few times. I'm just giving you a foreshadowing. Are you ready, Camille? I think I know what happened in this case. I think it was a rogue worker. Just a single (laughs) solitary. (laughs) You see where this is going, right? We've talked about this before (laughs) in the show. I've got a whole chapter in my never-to-be-written or never-to-be-finished book called The Rogue, because that is always the explanation. A rogue, of course, being a worker who just didn't follow the clearly established rules for ensuring proper disposal, as they would say it. That's, That's my theory, Camille, and I'm sticking to it. The Rogue. Yeah, yeah, they always love to blame it on some rogue employee, someone who just wasn't listening and doing what they are supposed to be doing. But the reality is this is the type of abuse that's pervasive in the animal industry, in the egg industry, for sure. Uh, This kind of conduct actually violates the, well, violates, quote unquote, (laughs) the non-binding National Farmed Animal Care Council codes uh, in the case of depopulation. So these are industry-created codes about... What should happen if someone's going to kill a bunch of birds? Camille, and they I say, know somebody out there in Manitoba is like sweating nervously now. <laughs> like, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. Did I breach the non-binding code? Oh, no. That could be problematic. 
What might the consequence be? Oh, oh wait, there God. is none. Oh, wait. Because it's non-binding. Uh, it's yeah. a voluntary code. Huh. But, you know, even though this is a voluntary code, the industry itself says that industry actors should confirm death before disposing of birds. Someone didn't do that in this case. And if I say, to finish the story off on behalf of my colleague who's not here, just reading from her words, these are her words. Sorry, I don't do the Jessica Scott Reed accent yet. Yet, Camille. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Birds are not protected by law. Farmed animals in general are considered mere property. And pandemic-related market fluctuators matter more... Related market fluctuations matter more than the lives of animals. So I wouldn't expect much. Neither would I. But thanks to Jessica for bringing it to greater light. Yes, indeed, because the the first part of addressing this problem is showing people what's going on. And actually, our next two stories uh, touch on this theme of exposing abuse that would otherwise be hidden. Uh, We're getting a glimpse into some of what the farm industry is up to right now. And we're going to talk first about the case of a a pig dying in transport last month outside Fearman Slaughterhouse again, the notorious Fearman Slaughterhouse in Burlington, Ontario. So a person who was on the scene and filmed inside one of these pig trucks full of animals being shipped to their death on a super hot day, they sent this footage to us. So we were able to release it. So we appreciate that from from Sean. Um, Sean tried to report what he saw to the CFA, but he got the runaround. And what he saw, Peter, was pretty appalling. Yeah, I saw, he the saw video. a pig. It's terrible. Oh, it's, it's awful. It's really it's really sad. There was So there's a pig. Pigs obviously in distress in some way, likely because of the heat, because it was a very hot day in July. The pig's mouth is open and their tongue is lolling out. It's turning purple, which isn't a good sign. And Peter, the most heartbreaking part of it is that there's another pig, maybe a friend, I don't yeah. know, uh, nuzzling gently this this dying or dead pig, maybe trying to wake them up. Um, it's one of those moments that sort of drives home how horrible it is what we do to them. We've got this the situation where this pig's dying and potentially their friend is watching it and trying to do what they can to help and just unable to do anything and they'll both be dead within minutes. But in fairness to the industry, Camille, who could have known it would be that hot? Right. And that's what that's what Maple Lodge said in the chicken case. Right. When chickens are freezing, like, you know, these unexpected cold days are very hard to predict in southern Ontario. Like, but the line keeps moving. The line keeps moving anyway. Yeah. And, you know, with with climate change, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I'm reading all kinds of doom stories about climate change, but it's only going to get worse. We're going to have more and more and more hot days every summer. And the industry's practice is to transport animals regardless of the weather conditions. Doesn't matter to them. And let's talk about the CFIA for a minute. So they gave the guy who tried to report this the runaround. Mm. They passed him around several times. They eventually told him that, you know, inspectors are on site and they would have seen this at the time. And that all they could do at this point was let Fearmans know about the issue. Like, what? Let Fearmans know about it? No, you're supposed to take action, enforce the laws, and charge this person. Well, we know what the answer, Camille, is it's the rogue. Some rogue employee put too many pigs on on the wrong day and, you know, shipped them off in the heat. So, like, again, this is clearly contrary to industry policy. Some rogue employee got loose. What can I tell you? I yeah. Mean, well, if you want to if you want to try to do something about it, we've set up an advocacy page where you can email the CFIA and tell them to do their jobs and enforce the laws. And we'll yeah. link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Very upsetting and very upsetting that a report is made because that's what happens in a lot of these cases. You get criticized if you don't make reports and you get criticized if you do make reports because it just doesn't go anywhere. 
Yeah. But in yet another case of animal abuse, and in yet another case, I believe, Camille, of repeat offending, we have some new footage that came out of Vancouver that was pretty difficult to watch as well, though I did watch it, of elite farm service workers, insert rogue workers here, Camille, correct? These are This is not industry standard. This is rogue workers abusing birds during chicken catching. And again, the video is pretty appalling. You just, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's really hard when you look at these industry things that are going on almost sometimes to separate just the average bad treatment and the extreme bad treatment. I think you know what I mean, you mean, I mean if you've seen the video. Because like I thought every move that was made by any of the, the workers was like pretty bad. It's just very callous. It's grabbing the animals, moving them very quickly and rapidly, throwing them in to crates. And of course, there's at least one person, I'm sure she jumped out to you. I think it was female, Camille. But jumped out to you, I, I could be wrong, but jumped out to me was like doing the extra kicks, the extra smashes, just all the extra stuff we've seen in these types of cases. Yeah, absolutely. So the chickens, they were just being flung into the crates head first. Um, and even workers were closing the crate lids on the necks and limbs oh, of these God. birds. It was um, terrible. Oh, it was awful. A veterinarian who reviewed the footage said that uh, improper handling like this can result in injuries ranging from bruises and head trauma like concussions to even fractured bones or dislocated joints. And this, you know, Peter, you're right. Like to a certain extent, this is kind of industry standard practice. Correct. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's legal because the animal transport laws that we have in this country say that you can't injure animals during transport. And that's exactly why SPCAs have investigated this type of conduct in the past. Um, this is not the first time Elite Farm Services in particular has been caught abusing animals either. Mercy for Animals actually did a pretty major video expose after a whistleblower uh, filmed employees at Elite stomping on live birds and ripping chickens apart and violently slamming them. And that's actually the subject of um, a trial that might be happening sometime pretty soon in BC because the company was charged. Yeah, it's it's always like I we've had this talk before. I always worry about it because you can see in the video like what grabs people's attention is the malicious stuff. Right. You know, there's a couple of actions in there that are particularly malicious and you can see them. It's like I think one of them gets frustrated with a bird, as I recall, and like does a little extra smash or kick at the bird. And that always gets the attention. But to me, it's the industry standard practice because I've seen a lot of this chicken catching video and uh, that's what drives me crazy is that everybody becomes almost immune to what is standard depopulation tactics especially for layer hens yeah absolutely it's not just about those sort of um, to use the word that you've been using as a theme this podcast it's not to, just those rogue cases when someone does something a little bit out of the norm the problem no. is more that the norm is so bad for it's these all birds. about speed it's about depopulating as quickly as possible the workers are given time limits everything has to be moving quickly and it's just like it doesn't encourage any type of animal uh, uh, friendly attitude of course all these animals are going off to be killed so like this all raises the whole question of you know what does that mean anyway but certainly the treatment along the way is particularly troubling because at least there are supposed to be rules to do something about that. Yeah, that's right. All right, another farm story. We've got a theme today. 
Duckling rental is a bad idea that should end. That's the title of an opinion piece that, again, our co-host Jessica Scott Reed wrote. Um, I was quoted in it, but you know, what's going on here, Peter? I don't know if you're aware of this trend or if it's crept into Alberta, but in Ontario, there's all these companies renting out ducklings to families. And apparently this was way up during the pandemic because people were home. So they're sending these ducklings into the homes of city dwellers and like, oh yeah, they're cute. It's great for the kids. And eventually they take them back after the family's paid some sort of fee, they return them to the farm, and then they're used for breeding or slaughter or meat or whatever the farmer wants to do with them. And Jessica wrote about this because there's some obvious ethical problems here. It's using animals for entertainment, right? Like people are paying for the pleasure of having these animals for a while, but then having no regard to what happens to them after. Um, Some people are going so far as to take them to farm sanctuaries because they learn the truth and they're pretty upset about that, which I think is awesome. But another legal issue that that I mention here is that a lot of cities, including Toronto, where much of this is happening, actually have bylaws against keeping birds like Mm. ducks in the city. So these companies are marketing to city dwellers completely, you know, thumbing their nose at that bylaw. Camille, our zero of the month just called me on the other line and they 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 are trying to figure out how Woolly Wonderland Farm did not win this month. I mean, seriously, like they have a legitimate, well, wait a minute. I just looked at who our zero of the month is. They don't have a legitimate complaint, but I mean, wow. In any other week, are these people not the zero? Like this is just like the Uh. worst, stupidest, most, it's just, it's so offensive. This story for some reason, stuff like this bugs me even, you know, it it bugs me even more than the food stories. Cause in a sense, just because like the food stories are like, look, we know what we're doing. We're slaughtering the animals, feeding you the chicken. You can like it or don't like it, whatever this is like this is such a good animal friendly thing and it's family fun and i'm like it's just it's absolutely asinine it's just it's yeah. it's such a bad idea i mean i don't even know where to start i think is this jessica scott reed promotion day is that what you're trying to do here camille don't think i don't know what's <laughs> going on here <laughs> just watch it jessica stop writing all these articles that we have to cite on paw and order oh wait a minute camille lapchuk has a quote in there too i see what's going on here anyway um it's a terrible idea it's just it's like why how in what in what circumstances is it a good idea to leave a vulnerable animal like that and then of course create a market that is like problematic when the animals get bigger yeah yeah hugely problematic but peter let's end on a bit of a good news story canada goose earnings are way down so this cruel company has been hit hard by the pandemic and it looks like they're experiencing a 63 percent revenue decline in the first quarter of this year compared to the first quarter of last year And they've lost $50.1 million in the second quarter. And they're saying that they're planning at this point to produce only about a third of the fall and winter goods that they made last year. So that's pretty awesome, right? Because that means they won't be killing as many coyotes or responsible for as many coyotes being skinned for fur trim. Um, As we've discussed before on this podcast, that company is moving in the direction of using only reclaimed fur, which is still a terrible idea for many reasons, but better than killing fresh animals every time. Uh, But, you know, this year, because of the pandemic, it looks like we may have an inadvertent positive effect on coyotes. 
I knew you'd love this story. This is a Camille story. I, I knew it because she loves, and she's done a lot of work on Canada Goose, so I totally understand why she gets excited to see their revenue decline. On a bright spot, though, Camille, I think Canada Goose has made a pledge to um, get rid of all the rogues in their operation, so there will be no more coyotes harmed <laughs> during the production, right? Because all the rogue <laughs> trappers will be... Okay, that's my last mention of the rogue. I had to make sure I had a theme through every story. Animal Stone is a Toronto-based, family-owned, women-run business specializing in handmade, solid sterling silver and solid 14-karat gold animal charms. Animal Stone was founded on the principle that humans, animals, and nature must exist harmoniously together to conserve our shared place on planet Earth. Animal Stone believes the joy that animals bring to our lives is an essential component to our ecological systems, so that together we must celebrate and respect their majesty. With the help of in-house designer and goldsmith Delane Cooper, over 40 3D animals have been brought to life, complete with a birth story, name, and personality reflective of the animal as it is in the wild. Animal Stone is a team of animal lovers and eco-warriors who celebrate the beauty of the natural world, while encapsulating this love for wildlife within the miniature bodies that are their Animal Stone charms. Animal Stone's mantra is connecting animals to people, and they have partnered nine of their animal charms up with local and global wildlife organizations to make a difference through rescue, conservation, education, habitat protection, and research. Check out AnimalStone.com to learn more and use code PAUSE10 for 10% off your order today. All right, well, that was fantastic. A lot of news, and uh, that takes us to our main topic. We are going to talk about um, some proposals to change the way animals are treated as victims under the criminal law. Yeah, so this, this is an interesting topic. Um, and there's a lot to go over here, Peter, so I'm not sure where you want to start, but I guess it was prompted by a piece that you came across recently, um, actually out of Hong Kong. So a law professor in Hong Kong has introduced uh, a situation where there is now an ability to provide victim impact statements in court for cases where wildlife crimes are being prosecuted so that um, there's an ability to push for tougher sentences, I guess. I'm not sure if that's exactly the point. Um, but really, I guess the point of the victim impact statements that she's trying to introduce here are to give the judge a chance to be made aware of how animals have been affected by crimes. So let's um, back up a bit, Camille, because for some of our listeners, they might not know what victim impact statements are. So just very briefly, um, victim impact statements are uh, a fairly, I mean, relatively new in the grand scheme of things, but a good 30 years old now in the Canadian criminal justice system. And victim impact statements allow victims of crime, once an offender has been convicted, um, to go forward and express what the crime did to them um, for a number of reasons that I think we're going to touch on, but effectively allow them to provide some sense of participation in the proceedings and some sense of being able to tell the offender, this is what this crime did to me. But of course, Camille, um, a victim of crime can only be a person, like everything else in our system. So it has to be a person who makes the victim impact statement. And of course, in some animal cruelty cases, um, you will hear, to some extent, the impact of what happened on the person's owner, right? Sorry, on the animal's owner. So, for example, if I'm convicted of animal cruelty of harming my neighbor's dog, then my neighbor has the right to present a victim impact statement, and they can even talk about what their dog might have gone through. Like, they can do that, but it's very limited in the way it works uh, in Canada today. 
Yeah. And, you know, that that sort of doctrine is similar to a situation where if you own an animal and that animal is is injured or killed, say you take them to a kennel, um, you're the person claiming for the damages. It's not the animal suing in their own name. So it, it really does go back to this theory of property ownership, which is that the owner has rights, but the animal as property doesn't really. So, and, and also, yeah, it, also it, as you pointed out, the, the conception of the way the crime is treated. Um, we have to remember that although it's evolving, I do feel like, you know, DLW and some other cases have, have stressed the evolution. Uh, but I mean, cruelty against animals was traditionally regarded as a property crime. And now we're, or, or, or a moral crime because it hurts society as a whole. But we're starting to see language, and we've talked about it in this show, um, about cases that are doing it differently. They're starting to recognize the harm to animals as beings on their own, as being what is punishable in the criminal law. Yeah, you know, and this idea that the crimes against property was was important, um, you know, it goes back to a situation where uh, it wasn't necessarily an offense to abuse your own animal because that animal was your property, but abusing the property of another person, a different animal, um, could have been a problem. So the law has definitely evolved since then. And, you know, I think, as you point out, that idea that it hurts society as a whole has been important for a while. But I think now the, the trend is towards criminalizing animal cruelty or making it an offense because animals can suffer. And because we recognize that. Now, obviously, the fact that they could suffer was always a motivation, but I think that's now becoming the main one. So I guess the question is the extent to which victim impact statements sort of reinforce that idea and the extent to which they're helpful. Um, a question around which there is some debate. Good. I look forward to engaging in that debate. Um, I'm happy to put forward a few thoughts of my own about what I think victim impact statements do and don't do and why I think I'm on the side of I think it would be great if there was a way to present victim impact statements on behalf of animals. And I guess my reasoning is this. Um, to me, the reason why victim impact statements were first introduced was twofold. One was to give victims a voice, but the second is equally important. And I think it's the one that's, to be honest, I I think giving victims a voice is powerful in and of itself. And I think you'd agree with that. I think the idea of animals or a representative on behalf of animals having a voice in court to really spell out um, what the animal might have gone through and why that's significant is useful to get that on the record before a court. So that's number one. I think the idea of giving victims a voice is symbolically important, and we've discussed that before. The, the second thing that I think is really positive about legislation like this is that, that, that when victim impact statements were first introduced, the idea was that it would have an educational function on the courts. And we can't forget, Camille, that it's these judges who make the decisions, like the one in Lucy the An Elephant, or the one, you know, the case after case in which animals continue to lose. And part of the reasons they lose is because judges just are not really cognizant of the types of things that animals go through. I think they recognize the basics of the law. Yes, animals are sentient, whatever. But I tend to think that over the long long run, having animal victim impact statements and like having someone try to explain, you know, someone who has spent time with the animal, the animal psychologist, the animal's veterinarian, a, a, a group of caregivers that have taken care of the animal who are able to voice that in court, have the potential to help provide long-term education to the decision makers of our society so that they really get a better understanding of what animals actually go through in these types of cases. So just to be clear, I have never thought that victim impact statements are useful in a punitive sense. That's not what I think they are. I think victim impact statements are useful in an educative sense, and that is something I'm in favor of. Okay, well, I, I've 
share some of your views, but I differ for you from you in some um, other respects. So let me just try to give voice to what I'm thinking. So your first point was that giving victims a voice has symbolic importance. And I guess my question, but and you say that you, d- you don't think that has so much to do with sentence. Um, but I guess I would say I'm not sure what other use there is other than sentence. I mean, I guess giving victims a voice would be symbolically useful if we had more of a reconciliatory system and, um, you know, a community justice system where the, the goal is reconciliation rather than punishment. But I think our system is much more focused on punishment. So my concern with giving victims an outsized voice in the courtroom um, is that I, I wonder to what use people put that, if not simply to sentence. Um, I think if you want to give somebody the opportunity to be heard because they're a victim of a crime, I do think that can be useful. But I think typically uh, the way that's used by prosecutors is as a sob story to impose a harsher sentence on someone. And we've talked a little bit about sentencing and carceral animal law in this podcast before and some of the critiques of it and whether it actually advances things for animals. So I guess that's where I fall there. Um, As far as the educational function of courts go, I just want to push back a little and ask you, what is the difference between having a victim being able to, you know, provide a victim impact statement and do that education versus the role of the prosecutor? Isn't that the prosecutor's job to to make that voice heard and make sure that perspective gets listened to? Okay, well, those are two good points. So like on the first point, I I don't entirely disagree with you, but let's just say um, I I don't think I don't entirely agree with you either. So I think I'm somewhere in between. I think you're right. I think that too often it is used as a victim's, as you say, sob story. But I I don't think that's always the case. Um, I did a long term study on victim impact statements. It was a while ago. It was in 2008. But I, I found that the literature showed that there was positive value both to the victims who in this case might be the victim's representatives, Camille. Like, we don't know. I mean, the the nature of the case, it's a bit speculative to say who would be the victim's representatives in this particular case. It would differ from case to case, I think. And I think in some cases it would be, optimistically, it would be third-party groups who really undertake to ascertain information about the victim and put it before the court. So I think there are cases in which having the victim speak would be useful for the victim. And I also think, I mean, while I take your point about it being used to ratchet up sentence, um, I do do still feel that the symbolic function of having the victim in the courtroom is, is, is useful. It says you're more than just a thing to be abused and a thing to be reckoned with, which is exactly what the role was of putting human victims in the court to say, look, you're not just a witness who comes in and out. At the end of the day, we want you to have your say about what happened to you. And there are limits upon that. And we could differ. I mean, actually, I don't think we differ about the extent to which those limits are adhered to. And I do take your point that it, uh, that it has um, um, a potential increase in carceral effect. But I, I, just, I guess I don't share with you the idea that that overwhelms the positive effect, in my view. As to the educative function, I'm all with you. If I could trust prosecutors to do this, I wouldn't need victim impact statements. But I do not. I do not trust prosecutors to do this. I do not think that prosecutors have the background necessary in a busy courtroom to do this type of work. And I think that we've seen that from time to time, we've seen prosecutors drop the ball. And I think prosecutors are concerned with the public interest and what's in the best interest of the public and what is, you know, not to mention their busy docket and everything else they're trying to do. And I think sometimes I've, look, I've listened to sentencing submissions and I've listened to the prosecutors say, 
what happened and what the effect was. And then I've heard the victim. And I think what the victim has to say is different. And I think judges listen to that. And I think in the long term, having judges get a better sense of understanding about the harm that an animal went through is useful, whether or not it's evidence that's used for punishment. Because frankly, I don't need it to be used for that purpose and don't really think it should be. But I certainly think, especially in an agricultural case, like when you're talking about the animals and you're able to put forth to some extent the degree of suffering that they might have gone through, I think that's more than is likely to come out during the conviction phase of the trial. I really do. When when the focus at the conviction phase of the trial is much more likely to be, was there harm? Yes, no. It's sort of a binary divide. It focuses very lightly on what took place. And I think there are cases where you can show that the animal has gone through extreme psychological suffering, for example. And I think that would be useful. And I simply don't trust prosecutors to actually go the extra mile uh, to get that information. Right. I, I guess one of my concerns with victim impact statements is that they only become relevant after there's been a conviction. There, are, for, for lay listeners who aren't lawyers, um, what you need to know about this is that it's not that there's just a victim impact statement read out at the beginning of a trial or a guilty plea. It's that somebody who is convicted of an offense, uh, then at that point, victims do have an opportunity to speak. So I guess my question, Peter, is how can it be educational in any real sense and, and do anything except go to sentence because it's only used really at the sentencing stage? Like, I guess I worry that if it's simply used at the sentencing stage, doesn't that simply act that, you know, the victimhood, doesn't that sort of simply act to make people feel better about the state of animal protection laws because they see a prosecution and a punishment being handed out? And you know, underlying that statement is the idea that most of the prosecutions, like nearly all of the prosecutions for animal cruelty that we see are cats and dog situations. So I worry that when you see a victim impact statement, potentially when a case is like that and you talk about the victimhood of the animals, that it reinforces the idea that the justice system is actually doing something for the animals who are higher value to us, who we cherish more than the lower status, quote unquote, victims like farmed animals who almost never become the subjects of a prosecution. Yeah, I, 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 again, I don't disagree with that point, but that is about prosecutions generally. I don't think that problem is exacerbated one way or another by victim impact statements. And I guess what I would say is the educative function to me comes from the judge listening to it. I, I don't see that it necessarily has to go to sentence. I think it will hopefully educate judges about what animals actually go through. And the reason I say that is because I don't think judges are privy to that information. I don't think they're getting it. I don't think judges during a trial on animal cruelty, I think they adhere to their own inherent knowledge of what animals are and what animals go through. And I think through a victim impact statement, you have range to go to a wider range of information and really explore what the emotional, psychological, or long-term ramifications of the harm that was done upon the animal uh, is actually occurred. And I think over the long term, that gives the judge a window into the real world of what actually happens to animals and the harm that is imposed upon them. So to me, I mean, I, I don't disagree with your point about we're too selective one way or another. That I agree with. And the higher order animals, totally agree with that. Like we, we've talked about that before. We're on the same page. But to me, I don't think victim impact statements exacerbate that. I think they're just a feature of that. Like I don't think they add to it. So anyway, that's my take. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I take your point and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm opposed to victim impacts per se. I think that the way that they're used is probably, um, you know, somewhat problematic, at least from my perspective, if it's just going to sentence. Um, and I, I do wonder if that information is already presented most of the time in cruelty prosecutions in Canada through, you know, sentencing evidence, because you can lead evidence of harm at the sentencing stage. 
So it's an interesting idea, but I, I did while we're talking about animals as victims, um, apart from the issue of victims, victim impact statements, uh, it's probably worth touching on a couple of developments south of the border as well. I don't know how familiar, Peter, you are with what's happening in Oregon or what has happened, but there's been some interesting cases there where uh, prosecutors have tried to make sure that when multiple animals are involved in an offense, they're each considered victims of that offense mm. rather than convicting a person of, of you know, one offense for all the animals, it would be a separate offense for each of the animals. So, you know, that's interesting. I think it's motivated by something good, but I do wonder about, again, what that really accomplishes and whether it just goes to sentence and brands a person as having been a bigger abuser than, um, you know, perhaps they were. And that you brought up the maple uh, leaf food case earlier, or maple lodge food case earlier too, which was an interesting one because I'm trying to remember, Peter. So for our listeners, that was a, a, a prosecution of offenses involving animal transport laws for a variety of chickens who showed up frozen to death at uh, Maple uh, Lodge Farm Slaughterhouse. And I'm trying to remember now if they prosecuted that, I think there was a representative count. Yeah, a couple of representative counts. Yeah, rather than going after um, the situation in each and every bird. So, you know, I, I found it might be interesting at some point to contrast that with the approach being taken in Oregon. Yeah, I don't I don't really have a strong feeling about the approach taken in Oregon. Again, intuitively, I like the idea of treating all animals as individuals. And again, I'm I'm maybe I have uh, undue faith in the sentencing process or conversely, Camille, I think it's so flawed anyway that I don't think this will this will do much to muck it up um, in the sense of like, I like the idea that animals are treated as individuals in every setting. I mean, that's that's part of what I'm saying here. To me, the biggest benefit is like, the more you recognize the animal as the true victim of the crime that took place, the better it is uh, in the long term for sort of enhancing the law and protections that exist for animals. That's just just sort of the way I take it. I don't, and I'm not saying it's the biggest thing out there. God, I don't even think it's in my top 50. But I do think it's something that symbolically, the, 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 it goes, I mean, we've talked about this before in different contexts. To me, the more you can enhance the status of the animal and bring them up um, to, to, humans and other legal persons, the better off we are. So like, I don't really think, I think to me, what's going on in Oregon is more symbolic than anything else. And I, I, I would I would tend to think that a judge um, who is looking at the sentencing impact of a particular crime should be looking at the impact of the animals in crafting an appropriate sentence. And again, I don't want to get into the long debate about, you know, whether punishment or imprisonment is better based on more animals. That's, that's, that's not what I'm getting at here, but I am saying in measuring the gravity of the crime, for God's sake, yes, Maple Lodge killed thousands of birds, like thousands, and, and that should be represented in whatever punishment they get. And in that case, of course, it's not imprisonment, but God, I sure wanted Maple Lodge to pay even more than they did. Right. Like like given the way they did, they 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 disrespected the law repeatedly on repeat occasions and blatant violation of the transport rules. So to me, I think the more we count animals as individuals, the more we're able to properly measure the gravity of the offense. Now, whether that leads to greater incarceration to me to me at least, is a separate question. Though I take your point that it's usually not in the way the justice system measures things uh, uh, for sentencing. Yeah, well, interesting issues here. I'm sure they'll come up again, but um, let us know what you think about this discussion.
Yeah, let us know and tell Camille she's wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually, I've told Camille off air many times that the, the more we disagree a little bit on points, I think the more interesting it is. I think it's better to bring out as many viewpoints as, uh, as we can about these things. So, so that's great. Absolutely. Heroes and Zeros. All right, Peter, it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Let me just, I just want to say, like, I don't know if she's listening, but I thought Jessica's Heroes and Zeros was, it needs a little work, Camille. I think you're going to have to work. Oh. No, I just, it, it, it was like, she's got to listen. Just Jessica, just listen. Like, you got to listen. It's like, Heroes and zeros. <laughs> it's that it's that really high pitched voice that that guy has. Oh, you're just jealous. Constructive you're criticism, Camille. Constructive criticism. I'm sticking to it. All right, you ready? You want to go first? Yeah. So, Peter, your province is oh our hero today. Or sorry, sorry, sorry. Let no, me back up. It's not hero. your province. <laughs> it's not your province. Usually we're giving Alberta a zero for a variety of different reasons, but actually this is an Alberta story, but it's not Alberta that gets the hero award. So it's actually the federal government for giving 2.6 million to help Alberta businesses develop more plant-based food products through uh, a place called the Food Processing Development Center in Leduc, Alberta. And I think that's pretty cool. It's part of the Western Economic Diversification Portfolio, and they are explicitly supporting vegan protein production because they recognize that it's a good business opportunity. So, yay. Yeah, I think it's great. I heard this was an initiative of Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Like, long may he reign, Camille. Long may he reign. <laughs> <laughs> he, he resigned. <laughs> he just resigned for anybody. Anybody I'm sure wondering people, about that. By the, time, by the time this forecast comes out, they'll get the joke, Camille. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help it. It literally just happened. But Alberta, plant-based, I'm all there. You notice, Camille, it's not the vegan-based food sector. I'm looking at the story. It is the plant-based, just to tie this episode in a bow. Yes, indeed. Don't don't use the V word. No, no V word <laughs> hey, whatever here. you want to call it, whatever no. you want to call it, go grow those chickpeas, go grow those lentils. That's great. No V word here. And our zero, Camille, let me say narrowly edging out like really like, i can't stress how narrow the edge out was of you know our friends with the duckling rental but honestly oh my god we are giving our zero to north korea and and i should probably say like i mean it, it almost feels like north korea like it's like they, they 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 do so many things that are so upsetting it almost seems like wow this is what we're picking on them for but this is the animal link camille north korea has decided that um pet dogs have a a new and uh, terrible purpose under north korean law indeed so they've decided that pet dogs should now be handed over to the state to become um meat so apparently north korea is forcefully confiscating people's pet dogs and and putting them down um, I guess some wow. are going to zoos, some are sold into the restaurant trade. Um, there's a number of specialized dog eateries in North Korea. Uh, you know, what's interesting about this is it only recently became a thing, apparently, to keep dogs as pets in North Korea. So there definitely isn't as long as a, a history of doing so as there is in some of the Western countries that many of us live in. 
So, you know, it, this isn't so much a commentary on, um, you know, <laughs> trying to Korea. shame anybody for <laughs> eating dogs because what's the difference between eating dogs and eating cows or mm. pigs or chickens? But um, it's, you know, pretty appalling that you'd ask someone to give over their pet, not ask them, forcefully remove a person's pet, a person's companion animal, and turn them into food. Yeah, we just, I guess, feel bad for... I mean, I feel bad for North Koreans every day of my life, right? It's not a... Uh, yeah. It's not. A, it's a place I'm happy I don't live in, wasn't born into, and uh, it's a terrible uh, regime in, in, in every which way. God, Camille, we could be in trouble putting this on the air. <laughs> We've become politicos. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I think Whoa. we're okay. But handing over pet dogs to be used as meat is what earns you a zero on Paw and Order. Yeah, and it's really sad. I mean, apparently North Korea is facing a widespread food shortage. We all know about the history of that in that country. And there's been heavy rain and flooding that have sparked huge crop damage. So I I don't know. I hope there's a way to get people relief there without... um, taking away their dogs without eating their dogs who, who, who yeah. anyway all right enough of that yeah. story camille that is the ultimate downer to end up on um yeah well it was great coming back to speak with you um i look forward <laughs> to being replaced again next episode and uh i will catch up all three of us for some lovely civilized banter um at the student conference really looking forward to it i'm looking forward to it too uh until next episode signing off We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRule podcasts, visit iRulePod.com 